We continue tonight with uh, our study in Revelation, and we are in a historical section of it, and a very Jewish section. If you remember those two things from the previous weeks, that we are in a region really dealing with Israel, and that's the focus and attention uh, of the previous chapters, uh, just just prior to what we are studying tonight. Um, for two previous chapters as well as the one we are in. Uh, we are then going to move into next week a description of the nations. And so we're having multiple uh, entities defined for us necessarily because of what's coming in the, the balance of the seven years. So we're looking at all the entities involved in them. We're not really looking at the church that much at this point. The church is in heaven, uh, and we are going to be reintroduced to them in a little bit. But uh, for the time being, we're going to be dealing with what is on, left on earth that God is dealing with during these uh, judgments. And specifically, the last series of judgments we call the bowl judgments. And so we are taking our time to really learn a little bit about these. And so we are in chapter 12 of Revelation, and we are going to... Uh, look at a historical event uh, on the heels of a, another historical event that we studied last week. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us, your spirit within us to guide us into its truth. And we thank you for uh, its accuracy and trustworthiness. And we uh, know that because it is so trustworthy that we uh, ought to live according to its principles and truths, according to its directives, and we do thank you for them. And we know that you have, by your Spirit, given us the power to do so, as we uh, saw this morning from your word. And we pray that he might have liberty to exercise himself in our midst this hour, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in uh, chapter 12, and just to bring you up to speed, if you were not here last week, um, we looked at a prophetic symbol. And that prophetic symbol was a woman uh, who ha was clothed with the uh, sun, moon, the 11, and 12 stars. We were easily able to identify this as Israel, and specifically the feminine aspect, the woman and not a man or Jacob or someone like that, is because she is there to represent the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. That it is out of the one born not of a man. And so we're able to do that by looking into Genesis. We quickly were able to uh, associate this symbol with Joseph's dream, where he dreamed about the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him, representing his family. And that dream was very quickly recognized by Jacob, as well as the brothers. And they said, Shall we, your mother, and, shall I, your mother, and your 11 brothers bow down to you? And so again, we have this connection, and we're always going to be doing that. We're going to be using the Old Testament to interpret symbols in Revelation, and we're going to do that consistently. Uh, and so we are able to identify that. We also introduced, uh, not introduced, or really described for us another sign or another symbol, um, and that was the uh, great serpent, the dragon. And of course, we have him described with seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns, um, who drew a third of the stars from the heaven. And, uh, and we're given a little bit more information that this one is the great dragon who is the devil and Satan. 
That's given us point blank in verse 9, that that's who that represents. The third of the stars, again, we reference that to the angelic host that followed him in rebellion and became the, the demon host. And so one-third of the heavenly entities we refer to as angels. Well, what was he doing? He was trying to stop the work of Christ. He did that by trying to kill Christ at his birth, um, which he failed to do, and yet at his birth, um, through the work of Herod, uh, many boys were slaughtered in Bethlehem Ephrathah uh, as a result of the wise men not returning, uh, being warned in a dream by God not to go back there. Uh, Herod, in his last days of life, really last months at least, um, was very paranoid about anyone and, and murdered some of his very own family for the same reason, uh, issued a decree that all boys down there should be slaughtered two years old and under. And so there was great weeping in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And so this child was born. Um, we know who the child was. The child was Jesus Christ. He is identified by his moniker in Revelation. In Revelation, he is not represented as necessarily... The, the focus of his representation is not necessarily as the Savior but as the king of kings, as the conqueror, as the ruler of all existence. He is the one who will rule with a rod of iron, it says. And this is, again, another presentation that we have of him in that context. Um, we, we have had a couple of contexts where he was the savior of men. We, I'm not discounting those. But overwhelmingly, he is there to be the, the one that men fear rather than that they turn to in in repentance and seeking salvation. And so we find that uh, he was caught up to God in verse 5 in his throne. We saw all of that as being historical. Uh, and then it said in verse 6, we, we left verse 6, and we didn't follow the woman uh, because we wanted to jump ahead and see what was the result of the child getting to heaven. And we saw the results of his uh, presence in heaven. We saw it earlier with regard to the heavenly entourage. What happened in heaven when Jesus got there? And we saw that back in chapter 5, where heaven, Jesus arrives, he's able to take the scroll out of the hand of God, he's able to, to uh, ch there's a change of song, there's a new song sung in heaven, and everything is focused in their attention on the uh, Lion of Judah, who is also the Lamb, the slaughtered Lamb, and who is there to redeem. And so we have that presentation of his effect on heaven. What we weren't told is what, his effect was on the third, with Satan and his third. What was the effect on them of Christ? Well, here we have that described for us, that Christ's arrival in heaven equipped the heavenly host with the uh, weapon, if you will, that would conquer Satan and give him no place in the heavenlies. And so Satan was cast down to earth, and we talked about the necessity of that being historical and not future. If that's future, then we're still in trouble. Satan is still able to accuse us, and uh, the blood of the Lamb has not been applied. And that is horrific to even think of. And so we talked about that last week. You know, the absolute necessity that verses 7 and following, 7 through 12, are historical and that is that Satan and his angels were cast out of heaven. They were cast down to earth. That happened um, nearly 2,000 years ago. 
1985 years ago. And so we, we, we can identify that. That was necessary theologically to happen historically. And those that want to take us into the future in verses 7 through 12, that that happens somewhere during the time of the tribulation or something like that, of the seven years of his wrath. Uh, theologically, we have huge issues with that, if that's the case. No, this occurred historically. Um, it happened when Christ arrived in heaven. The new song changed. The focus on the throne changed from the creator God to the redeeming Lamb of God to the Son. And uh, the effect then on Satan and his honorage is that they were no longer given access to heaven like we saw in Job and other places where they could accuse the brethren and say, aha, aha, look at them. They're not faithful following after you. That is no longer a satanic privilege. He cannot do that any longer. Um, we know that because we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he is no longer our accuser. He was, past tense in the text, the accuser of the brethren. Uh, he is, present tense in verse 9, the one who deceives the whole world. The one who deceives the whole world, who was the accuser of the brother, who accused, past tense, our brethren. And so he is no longer has that role. He can still deceive the world, and he does so fantastically well, especially going into the end times, as we're going to see in later weeks. Um, but his role as the accuser of the brethren is gone. He's now cast out on earth, and a very powerful warning is given. And the warning is, watch out, he's been cast down to the earth, and he knows, and first of all, he's angry, and he knows that he has a short time. And you and I might think, well, it's been 1,985 years. How can you say it's been a short time? Um, well, remember that prophetically, these are the last days, and they have been. Uh, and that's how the Word des describes the church age, as... In, in, these, these are the last days, all the way through for the last 1,900 plus years. And so he knows that he's been ultimately defeated. He couldn't stop Jesus Christ. He couldn't stop him at his birth. He couldn't stop him with the temptations. He couldn't stop him even with a crucifixion. And so he was resurrected and the power is there in heaven. There's nothing he can do about it. He can't even access heaven. He has no contact there whatsoever any longer. And so he's on heaven. Oh, I'm sorry, he's on earth. And again, all the New Testament presentations of him are earthbound. He is a roaring lion prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. We have him in an earthly uh, setting. He is angry. The future is about the expression of God's wrath, not Satan's. This is the time of Satan's wrath. He is angry. He has no access to heaven. He cannot accuse you, uh, the brethren, because your sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. He has nothing to accuse you of because you are cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. You carry that righteousness, so what can he accuse you of? You confess, it's, you're washed by the snow, you cleansed us, and uh, we stand uh, justified before God. So that's our condition. And so what's he going to do? Satan is cast down to the earth, and we left that off. We didn't say really what Satan was up to during that time. Uh, and so we want to meet these two entities. We left the woman... As, at, at verse 6, right? What is she doing? The woman who represented Israel, national Israel, not just an individual woman, but she was a symbol, a sign of Israel the nation. What happened to her? Well, we left her off that she fled into the wilderness, that she has a place prepared by God, 
and they're going to be fed there for 1,260 days. Okay, three and a half years. So we left her there in the wilderness, and we didn't follow her there. I didn't want to track her there, um, because uh, the very last verses of chapter 12 describe her journey. So we're told very briefly where she's going to go and how long, but we're told expansively how it happened at the end of the chapter. Once we've been introduced to the other entity who's been trying to kill the child that she bore, uh, Jesus Christ, and what happened to him because of his victory. So now we have the woman, Israel, and we have her greatest adversary, Satan, who is earthbound uh, and mad. And so what does Satan do when he's mad? He wants to get even. He wants to go after the people of God. And so let's pick this up now in verse 13. It says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And so his, if he couldn't stop Jesus Christ, what was he going to do? He's going to attack Israel. He's going to destroy the people of God. If he couldn't destroy the Son of God, uh, the people of God are still on earth, he would destroy them. This woman who is representative of Israel. And again, somewhat distinguished from the church, but remember from this morning, for 20 years, what was the church? The church was full of Israelites, and predominantly. And so, um, we're going to see that connection here very soon. But his real assault is on Israel. And, and we're going to see that played out historically. Verse 14, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. And again, that's connecting us back to what was described very briefly in verse 6. Correct? Flight into the wilderness. Not a second flight. This is the same flight, um, just given the expanded version now that we've been introduced to why Satan is hunting her. Um, she is nourished, again fed, time, times, and half a time. That is another mechanism used from Daniel. And a time is a year, times is two years, and half a time is a half year. And so we have three and a half years, which is described in days earlier on, so we have a lot of precision here. From the presence of the serpent. She is hid from the serpent. And how did this happen? Well, the serpent is going to chase her. The serpent is going after her. And we're going to describe all of this historically. The serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. He might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the woman spewed out of, or the, the dragon spewed out of his mouth. Um, and the dragon was enraged with the woman. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, instead of dealing with the woman, um, we are going to divert attention to a different group of people who are connected to the woman. And it says the rest of her offspring, uh, that there were others, and they carry with them the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so, since he was unable to destroy Israel as a people, he turns his attention to um, her other offspring, those who have the testimony of Jesus Christ, which by this point was more than just Israel, um, and certainly there are many Israelites involved, but we're talking about the church now. So the Christian people were being hunted um, in addition to, and because they couldn't take care of uh, the Israelis because of their... Uh, wilderness hiding place uh, and so they turn their attention to the Jews I'm sorry to the Christians 
So, when did all this happen? Um, and we have a, a real interesting description uh, by a guy named Josephus. I'll introduce you to him. Uh, Josephus was a historian. He was a Jewish man. Uh, he was uh, in the priestly line. He studied as a Pharisee for a little while till he turned uh, 19 or so. Uh, and uh, he was, to some degree, um, collaborating with the Romans even early on in his life. Uh, he did travel to Rome once and uh, to free some Jews who were falsely accused and successfully had them freed uh, and then headed back. But on that trip to Rome, he was just captivated by how powerful the Roman Empire was and how certainly it is that Israel should not ever rebel against this empire because it would mean that she would be extinguished as a nation. They would just squash you like a bug in Josephus's mind. And, and, um, and yet when he returned, um, because of his influence and position, because of what happened there in Rome, uh, they wanted him to defend part of Galilee. Now, around 66, um, something was stirring in Jerusalem. And uh, there was some contention, and there was a very poor, I don't want to say mayor, a general, um, there was a very poor Roman uh, official there that essentially uh, just picked fights with the Jews and did some things that he knew would incite the Jews. And sure enough, he incited the Jews, and they fought back and because there was this strong violation. He was doing so. In fact, the Romans later on... Uh, condemned him for what he did um, because uh, of what it led to and that the whole rebellion was incited not by Jews but by this Roman official. And so the, the Roman official incited this. The Jews started raising up a rebellion. It wasn't just in Jerusalem but it was focused there. And in fact, we find that many of the towns and villages around the region emptied into Jerusalem the men and they formed quite a sizable army um, pretty significant and uh, the Romans recognized it saw the the uh, <laughs> threat that it formed and uh, so they sent out their best general they sent out Cestius uh, was his name and he was sent there to um, basically squash the rebellion um, he had done so in some of the outlying regions. He didn't find very many men um, because they had all gone to Jerusalem. They were called to arms. They all went to Jerusalem to defend the temple um, that was still standing at this point to defend Jerusalem. And so there's a call to arms. And so they emptied out the neighborhoods around the, the communities and uh, yet Cestius visited them and killed any men he found and burned several of the towns and uh, came upon this. He was joined by a couple of other legions um, in addition to his army, and King Agrippa was going to help out as well. He was assigned to assist. And so we have this huge army arrive in Jerusalem and uh, basically uh, cut her off and just surrounded her. And Cestius um, was a very good military commander, knew his job, had a great reputation, which is why he was given this responsibility. And Josephus describes this in his book, The Wars of the Jews, and, uh, and talks about how he besieged Jerusalem and how successful it was that on at least two occasions um, there was attempts by factions within Jerusalem to surrender the city. Uh, there were several individuals who were just going to sneak down and open the gates and let the Romans in. 
And uh, Josephus speaks pretty highly of them. Uh, he thought they were the sensible people. Because <laughs> there's no way we can, they could deal with this. Now remember, Josephus himself wasn't there. Um, he may have been in the region um, because he was supposed to be defending Galilee. But he's going to surrender his forces. He just flats out surrenders. I ain't going to fight these people. He does some engagement to protect some things, but essentially he just surrenders. And so many Jews consider him a traitor to Judaism and to Israel. But for his, from his perspective, he said, I'm, I'm going to save the lives of these people by surrendering and ending this rebellion. Uh, in terms of Galilee and his final place you know of, and that's Caesarea um, up by Galilee, where um, a guy named Peter was from. Remember him? And uh, so that's kind of the last bastion for uh, Josephus. And he actually comes into a very, very pleasant relationship with Vespasian, um, the one who he's up against, and they actually put him on. He, he takes on a, a Roman name, uh, Flavius Josephus, and um, gets uh, a pretty rich endowment for the rest of his life to work for them as a historian. It allows him to write all these books. But he records what happens here in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded by an army. Remember, Jesus told Israel, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by, the, by forces, flee, run away, do not fight, run. Well, there was no time to run. Cestius had Israel uh, encircled. Um, he was down and it had really penetrated a lot of Jerusalem. And, and he was ready to really take the Temple Mount. And here's how Josephus describes it. It says, um, a, a horrible fear had seized upon the seditious, that is the rebellious within the city, insomuch that many of them ran out of the city as though it were to be taken immediately. So the people were abandoning their posts. They weren't staying there to fight. They were ready to abandon the post and give the city over to uh, Cestius. But the people up, upon this took courage, and where the wicked part of the city gave ground... Thither did they come in order to set open the gates and to admit Cestius as their benefactor. So again, there's this movement to open the gates and just let him in. Let's just surrender. But Cestius did a weird thing. And here Josephus says, I suppose owing to the aversion God had already at the city and the sanctuary that he was hindered from putting an end to the war that very day. So what did he do? It happened that Cestius was not conscious either how the besieged despaired of success or how courageous the people were for him. And so he recalled his soldiers from the place and by despairing of any expectation of taking it without having received any disgrace, he retired from the city without any reason in the world. Josephus is confounded. The people are frightened. They're abandoning their post. Many within the city are ready to open the doors and just let you in. Your soldiers have already set up shields and buttresses. They had put themselves in what are called the, the turtle. That is that they put all their shields above them because all the Jews had arrows. So they just put the shields above them. They went in under that turtle and they had already set up a buttress on one of the um, uh, walls of the Temple Mount. I mean, they were that close. And for some reason, that very day, when in Josephus' mind, is Jerusalem should have fallen and the war been over, Cestius packs up his army and runs away. He marches away. 
the very day that he should have had victory, for some reason in his mind, that Josephus tries to imagine, um, Cestius ups and packs and walks away. Well, all the people who had been caught in the city saw this as an opportunity. And this is how Josephus described many of the residents of Jerusalem. After this calamity, many of the most prominent of the Jews swam away from the city as from a ship when it was going to sink. I love that he uses that imagery of a sinking ship. Um, Josephus had been in a shipwreck or two and that imagery is very real to him. But he says that the Jerusalem emptied out like a ship sinking and everything was running and, and just swam out of the city. That while Cestius was gone, that there was a group that's going to go after him, but the city largely emptied and people ran to hide. They ran off into the wilderness, they crossed the Jordan, they got into the mountains of, of, of uh, Gilead and, and Perea. They were just scattered mostly to the east and they just ran away and, and uh, found this as an opportunity to get away, to obey what Christ said, and to vacate Jerusalem. But not all of them. There was the soldiers of Jerusalem, and they said, well, Cestius is running away. He's afraid of us. So what do you suppose they did? They followed him. They followed this huge that army. And remember, Israel had pretty much all their forces there. If they had surrendered, the, the war had been over. Um, Josephus had a couple thousand up in Galilee, but largely everyone was there in Jerusalem. And so they took heart, and these people who were about ready to surrender raised up some courage and followed Cestius right out. Now Cestius starts marching away, marches away pretty quickly, and this is how the retreat, the strange, odd retreat, is described by Josephus. The Jews did not so much press upon them when they were in large open places. That is, the Jews who followed Cestius' army didn't attack them in the open. Here's what happened. But when they were penned up in their descent through narrow passages, then did some of them get before, that is, in front of them, and hindered them from getting out of them. And others of them thrust the hindrance down into the lower places, and the whole multitude into the lower pla- and the whole multitude extended themselves over against the neck of the passage and covered the Roman army with their darts and darts or arrows or spears, whatever they were throwing. So as Cestius' army is in marching away, the Jews see it. They know the terrain better than Cestius. They see exactly where Cestius is going, and they go, "If we block the other end of that, and we push him into that, he's trapped in a deep valley." And so they do that. They get around. They have a huge force in front. They have a huge force in back. They push them in. And Cestius's army is basically pinned into this very narrow, long valley. And the rest of the Israelites get up on the both sides and just start pelting them. And Cestius's army can't do anything. Here's, what, here's how he describes it. It says... Um, in which circumstance, as the footmen knew not how to defend themselves, so the men on foot didn't, couldn't defend themselves, so the danger pressed the horsemen still the more. So they pushed the horsemen out there to, 
take them on. For they were so pelted they could not march along the road in their ranks, and the ascents were so high that the cavalry were not able to march against the enemy. The, the horses couldn't get up the ridge either. So the footmen can't march forward. They have no place to hide. They're basically sitting ducks until nightfall in this great earthen grave. It says, the precipices and the valleys into which they frequently fell and tumbled down were such on each side of them that there was neither place for their flight nor any contrivance could be thought of for their defense. Till the distress they were at last in was so great that they betook themselves to lamentations and to such mournful cries as men use in the utmost despair. While the Jews had joyful acclamations. So the Jews are up there shouting, yeah, we're taking them out. And the Romans have nothing to do but cry. Lament. Bewail. Those are crying. They had nothing to do. What can we do? We're doomed. And the only thing that saves them is nightfall. And at nightfall, Cestius uh, sets up the, the fires, leaves them behind a few men to keep the fires, and sneaks out like a beaten dog. He just sneaks away. Great victory for Israel, right? But in the midst of this, it did something to Rome. And Israel was no longer seen as just a rebellious group they need to keep in tow. Now, they are a genuine force to be reckoned with. This infuriated the Romans. And so, Revelation describes that, they're, that Satan is going to spew out a flood to destroy her, to destroy the woman, Israel. The flood in, in prophetic utterance way back into the Old Testament is, points to um, a vast army, that they are to be devoured by this army. In fact, they should have been. And instead, the earth opens up and swallows the water up. And essentially... The vast army that should have easily taken Jerusalem is caught in this great big crack in the earth and are slaughtered almost wholesale um, by the Jews. And, and they sneak away in the night. Just as the prophets predicted. It allowed for the Israel, many aspects of Israel, the prominent people of Israel, to escape. They get out of Jerusalem, they run and hide. And so we, we see a, a perfect fulfillment of this um, through verse 16. And so the earth opened its mouth. It swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. He has attempt to destroy Israel by inciting a, on a rebellion that would then be squashed by the Romans is thwarted for who knows what reason. Well, we know because there is a prophetic description of this. And Christ gave the instruction, when you see this, get out. And now here was their window of opportunity. And it didn't last very long. Because when word of this got to Rome, they sent another army bigger than Cestius's, um, led by a man named Titus. Vespasian was there too. We have Titus uh, Vespasian, that is him. So we have them coming in, and they are going to besiege Jerusalem. That's all in 66. Guess how long they besieged Jerusalem? Three and a half years. 
time, times, and half a time. For three and a half years, they're going to besiege Jerusalem. And anyone that stayed behind and didn't listen to Jesus, didn't do what they're supposed to do and run away, and stayed in the city thinking, we beat one Roman army, we'll beat another one. All those rebellious, contentious, seditious people is how... Um, Josephus describes them. All of them stayed there, and for three and a half years they were under heavy besiegement. Horrible things were happening there. This is the time period when women were eating their children, uh, and and there was uh, just horrible atrocities going on because of hunger in the city. Um, they had eaten pretty much every animal, and then started eating any that had died, and and so it was just it was just getting horrific in there. And all the time out here, uh, Titus is 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 uh, just systematically and with great patience just debilitating Jerusalem and debilitating Jerusalem until finally Jerusalem falls and his soldiers are so angry still, three and a half years later, they're so upset about what happened. They go in and when the first edict was that you're supposed to preserve the Temple Mount, um, they just went in and demolished it, stone off stone. No mercy. Stone, every stone turned off and just burned down. Josephus describes it, that it wasn't really Titus's desire to do that, but we find that uh, that's what happened. So the Bible says that um, when the dragon failed to really destroy Israel because so many of them went into hiding, so many went into the wilderness, uh, into the mountains, into the <coughs> prayer and of, of Gilead on the uh, other side of the Jordan, the eastern side of the Jordan, which is today the country Jordan. Uh, so many were hiding there. Um, Satan got angry again. Cestius ruined my opportunity. I could have basically set the stage to completely annihilate Israel from off the planet. Instead, all these Jews got away. So what happens? Well, the prophetic statement says in verse 12, or verse 17, the dragon was enraged even more. And so what did he do? He went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And uh, this is exactly what happens. That when this happened to Cestius, um, this is the response of the Romans around the Roman Empire. You ready? The people of Damascus, when they were informed of the destruction of the Romans, not the destruction of Jerusalem, when they were told about Cestius's army being pinned down and essentially destroyed, when the people of Damascus, and who do you know in Damascus? Name one person you know in Damascus. That's where he came to know Christ. Who did he meet there? Ananias, Right? What the you know, Lord of Matthew has sent me, you receive your sight. So there's a powerful church there in Damascus. And the people of Damascus, when they were informed of the destruction of the Romans, set about the slaughter of those Jews that were among them. And as they had them already cooped up together in the place of public exercises, which they had done out of the suspicion they had of them, they thought they should meet with no difficulty in the attempt, yet did they distrust their own wives which were almost all of them addicted to the Jewish religion. And what he's referring to is not Judaism, but really Christianity, which Josephus felt was a sect of Judaism. He didn't really perceive it as a separate religion, but simply a group. And he had been 
he had been with the Essenes for a while. He had spent some time with Sadducees, and he settled in the Pharisees. And so he, he just saw Christianity as another sect of Judaism. And he said that, that uh, many of the Romans didn't even trust their wives because they were so enamored, in his mind, with the Jewish religion. Their greatest concern was how they might conceal these things from their wives. So they came upon the Jews in this, um, what I say, the place of public exercises. That's basically the Colosseum, the, the biggest place they could put people. They came upon the Jews and cut their throats as being in a narrow place in number 10,000. They slaughtered 10,000 Christians in Damascus and Jews that day, in one day. Why? It says all of them were unarmed and this in one hour's time without anybody to disturb them. And this is just one example. Romans all over the Roman Empire, when they heard what the Jews had done to their army, rounded up Jews, Christians alike, because they were considered the same religion in Romans' eyes, rounded them up and had public executions at this level of tens of thousands. They were so furious at what happened because this kind of treatment of a Roman army was unheard of in the time. And so out of the anger of the Roman Empire, Christians were being, and Jews alike, and remember most Christians were Jews at this point, a, a lot of them, and again there was no uh, distinguishment. Um, when a Roman wife receives Christ in a Roman mind, she became a Jewess. And he didn't trust her. So they had 10,000 of them in the Colosseum. They wouldn't tell their wives what they were up to and they all entered that Colosseum in Damascus and slit every man's throat in one hour. They were unarmed. They couldn't defend themselves. They didn't even know that that was... They hadn't even heard what was going on with Sustius' army. They didn't even know what it was all about. And the Bible says that the dragon out of anger is going to hunt after who? Very clearly the rest of her offspring. The main part of Israel escaped, went off into the wilderness. God was going to keep them alive, to keep Israel alive because of his promises. And yet there was this great company that would feel the brunt of Satan's anger. And they slaughtered them by the thousands. In town after town, city after city. Well, all of that happened. That's a historical record. This is the guy that was commissioned with the job of writing for the Romans what happened with the Jewish wars. And it plays out exactly as this passage is given to us down to the pretty specific fulfillments. So we have a historical record, and this was very likely, most likely written just prior to this. And this is something that's in prophetic writing 
all through the Old Testament is that you have near things being prophesied so that when they come true, you should have absolute confidence that the rest of the book is true too. And so when we see a passage like this, and we can point to it, and we can say, well, Jesus Christ, you know, that's historical to John, and maybe this part is historical to John too. It's possible. Some would contend with me that that's just, because they would contend that Revelation was written after 66, after the fall of Jerusalem. Um, but we have this description here, and we should have that confidence that the rest of this is true too. The rest is going to play out just as it declares. And so we have this record for us that has occurred. And so all of this chapter has already happened. In fact, we move into chapter 13, we're going to discover that almost all of chapter 13 has already happened. That this stuff we call prophecy um, is we should have every confidence in because we've seen so much already occur that we should have every confidence that the balance of it will definitely occur as it has been declared. And therefore, it should transform our lives. We should wake up and realize the world is going to be destroyed by fire. There is going to be seven years of the outpouring of God's wrath. There is going to be a battle of Armageddon, a real one. There is going to be a judgment day. There is going to be a lake of fire. All those things are real. There is going to be a heaven, too. And a marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and a judgment seat of Christ. All those things are real. And it's this kind of passage that gives us that confidence. When we can identify this as a historical event that the fall of Jerusalem, which was huge to the Israelites, in this very Israeli section of Revelation, we find the presentation of the fall of Jerusalem as the work of Satan's anger over the victory Christ has accomplished by his shed blood in heaven. And so he is on earth and he's still here. He's still mad. His time is growing even shorter and he knows it. So what do you think he's up to today? Anything different? No. And so in the weeks to come, we're going to see in chapter 13 and then reaching into chapter 17, what is Satan going to be up to um, after this event gives you the characteristic qualities that he's going to be bringing into the scene, that he's going to be working through nations and armies and, and uh, trying to uh, stop God's people. He's going to try to destroy God's people, both the Jews and Christians. He's going to try to annihilate them. That's his goal. And yet God has intervened, just as he did there. Why did Cestius turn around and march away? Nobody knows. Why would you do that? A capable general just turn around and walk away from a battle he's just about ready to win and then be humiliated in a valley not very far off. And so, but we recognize it, that that's the hand of God because his word will come as he's declared it. It will occur. And so we're going to see how Satan has been at work and, and how we... Uh, and we're given some instruction intermixed here. Every now and then there's going to be this little, what are you doing participating in that? When that's Satan's activity, why are you a part of it? Come out from that. Get away from it. And so we have this 
entity we're going to really tear into in chapter 13, but we see its earliest history in chapter 12. What was Satan about right after Christ's ascension into heaven and his being kicked out of heaven? Well, he's about attacking God's people. And that hasn't changed. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for a very clear passage that we are able to identify and to see with confidence that has occurred just as you declared it would. And Lord, we rejoice not in the slaughter of people, uh, not in the horrors of war, but in the reality that even in those circumstances you're there, you are the means of hope and of deliverance, that your promises are still sure, and that we need still to follow you. And Lord, we see around us people that we encounter that blame you for the activity of evil men and of Satan and nations. Uh, and we will not be among them. For we see that you are a God that desires good and has died for us and for all men. And for this, we can't cease to give praise to your name. We know that one day your wrath will be poured out on this earth. And Lord, as we today experience the wrath of your adversary, our adversary, the devil, Lord, give us that courage to stand fast until your coming. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.